we gathered together as a local church among many in the area to worship, to be before the Lord, to encourage and strengthen one another, and to be reminded of the key truths that the Lord has given us, and to experience life through His Word. So being before His Word is an important part of our Sundays, so we take time as a church to go through the Scriptures, to teach and proclaim His Word right from the Bible. And uh, we just finished a series that took us uh, over a year, 16 months, with some breaks, uh, 32, I think, or 31 different messages going through the book of Revelation. Uh, and it was, uh, I trust, a helpful series, an important book in the Bible. Uh, and, I, and I trust God used it to teach us. Uh, the most important thing in Revelation uh, is that Jesus wins, and it will be uh, well worth it in the end. It's well worth it to follow Him now, no matter what the cost, because He wins and He is good and we get to be with Him. That's really what the message is about. All those other things you've heard uh, can be distractions. That's the core message of Revelation. And it's an encouragement to us to, to be faithful, to depend on Jesus, to walk with Him. He's always going to be faithful and it will be well worth it. But it was an intense series, so we're taking a, a break right now with a mini-series, three messages from Luke 15 on the fatherhood of God. And as I said last week, it's kind of like uh, we just had a really hard workout in Revelation. And now we're just going to soak in the jacuzzi for a few messages, uh, this spiritual jacuzzi on the fatherhood of God and the love of God, uh, and just learn more about this. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you can get our messages. Uh, they're on uh, Facebook and uh, iTunes and SoundCloud as well. So we're, we're looking at this chapter. This is a remarkable chapter in Scripture. It's a whole chapter. Uh, virtually every word in it is a teaching directly from Jesus Christ, the, the God in the flesh. Uh, and the context of his teaching is that there are irreligious people, uh, the, the sort of people you wouldn't expect at church, the sort of people you wouldn't expect at the, in the temple in that day, who are being drawn to Jesus. And they're, they're, they're being drawn to him, they're following him, they're listening to his word, and, uh, and actually he's eating with them as well. He's spending time with them, he's welcoming them uh, into his presence as friends really as they come. And this is really controversial to the religious people because they have a very different notion of what God should be like, a very different notion of what a, a prophet or a leader should be like. And so they are upset with Jesus. And really what we're learning as we go through this chapter is both of these groups are getting God the Father wrong. They misunderstand God the Father. And that's really why they do what they do. And so Jesus is bringing teaching in this chapter to correct their understanding about God the Father, uh, to correct this root problem. Uh, both these groups are really lost. They're lost, they're separated from God, they're far from God, because they misunderstand God and have lived in rebellion of different sorts. So Jesus is bringing this teaching to them. Last week we looked at the younger brother, um, representing the irreligious rebels who run away. They rebel and run away. And they think that God somehow is a killjoy or a bore or just not enough, not good enough, not glorious enough. So they rebel, they run away, and they follow some, they create some sort of substitute. So they don't want God on his terms. They run away. And the result is emptiness and destruction. We saw that in the story. And yet the son, the younger son, realizes this and returns to the father. Uh, and he finds the father. Uh, amazingly gracious to him, surprisingly gracious. So that's what we saw 
last week. Next week we'll look at the older brother. And he too is lost. In the story you'll see he, he seems like he's the compliant one. He's the obedient one. But we learn in the story that actually he's just as far as the younger son ever went, even though he's at home. And he needs to be rescued as well. But this week we're going to kind of concentrate on the core of the story. We're going to look at the father himself. The father in the story and the the truths that come out through the story, through Jesus' story. And and Jesus really is a master storyteller. We're taking time to analyze this story because it's God's Word, but it's also told by a master storyteller. And so there's lots of aspects of the story that that on first listen you might miss. So we're going to slow down and look. And so this week we'll look at the Father and what He's like. Uh, And in this, I trust that we'll know the Father as we've never known Him. That's what I've come to realize as I've been preparing this. I've been through this passage, I don't know, a hundred times. I've, I've uh, taught on it. And as I prepared uh, th- these past couple weeks, I realized I've not known the Father as I thought I did. And so let's pray and ask Him to show Himself to us because He is way better, way more glorious, uh, full of g- greater goodness than, than any of us understand. And we all need to be changed by knowing Him as He really is. So let's pray together. Lord, we ask You as we look at Luke 15 today, we ask You to show us Yourself. Lord, we at least can say we probably don't know You as You really are. And we need to, Lord. The most important thing is to really know You as You are. So we pray You'd show Yourself. We pray You'd help us to hear and understand. I pray, God, You'd help me teach from Your Word. Uh, You'd help me teach Your Word accurately, faithfully, and by the power of, of You, God, the Holy Spirit, You would make Yourself known to us and change us. And that Your Word would have all the effect You intend. We, we ask and we thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you can follow along as I read in your Bibles if they're in uh, best things to have the Bible in your hands. and Follow along, but you can also follow it on the screen as I read uh, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. God's Word from Luke chapter 15. I want to look in this story at three aspects of the father. I'm just going to kind of go through the story and in particular the, the section on the father. So if you can project that section, just leave that up there, Dan, so we can see it, that central section. I'm just going to walk through that section of Scripture and, and point out aspects. We're going to, as we go, I trust, learn about three key qualities of the father. His graciousness, uh, his compassion, and his uh, humility and really treatment of shame and honor. So his humility, we'll call it. His graciousness, his compassion, and his humility. And, and in this, uh, this story is meant to reflect who the Father is. Uh, the most important thing about us is what we think about God. A.W. Tozer has said. And so it's important for us to get God right. And this chapter in Scripture helps us to get 
God writes. So as we go, Dan, if you could put that passage up. As we go, um, we see in the, in, the be- in the beginning of this section, in verse 12, the amazing graciousness of the Father. It's really, it's really truly amazing how He treats the younger brother. And we, and we see it right in the beginning. We see it in verse 12 because of... Actually, that's earlier than what you've seen. But in verse 12, we see it by, by the Father's response to the younger brother's request. The younger brother comes and he asks for his share of the estate. He asks for his part of the estate. And this request from the Son is incredibly audacious and deeply insulting to the Father. We talked about that last week. This is, this is deeply insulting to the Father. And for Him to even ask it is shocking. Um, the, the, we miss it because of our background. We live in a, in a culture that just doesn't understand some of the aspects of this story that would have been understood in that original audience. And by the way, just so you know, Jesus is not necessarily affirming everything about the culture as He brings this story. He's using the culture, He's using the context of the culture to bring them truth. So He's recognizing how they relate to each other and then using that to point out truth. But that culture had certain aspects that we don't have. It was a, an honor-shame culture. It still is in the Mideast. Much of the Mideast uh, is an honor-shame culture. Um, that's a different culture than ours. We live in a, a very uh, independent, individualistic uh, guilt and merit culture. Individual guilt and merit. So it's very different. They, they were in an honor-shame culture. So it's collectively a culture that values collective honor and collective shame. So, so living in respect to your elders, living in respect to the village, living in respect to the family, and elevating the respect that the, that the family would receive from your behavior is really the highest virtue in that, in that sort of culture. Often, they're very nuanced cultures too, so there's a lot of nuance on how you speak and what you do, and there can even be ceremonies of honor and shame that come with it. And that was the context to which Jesus is speaking, uh, telling this story. So when the younger son asks for his share of the estate, it's not how it would be in our culture. We just think in terms of dollars and cents and individuals and legal requirements. And we may look at the story and think, well, of course. What young son wouldn't want to say at that phase of his life? You know, we picture him being 18 or 21. Father, I'd like to have my inheritance now so I can go make it on my own. We, we might even celebrate that decision thinking, yeah, of course, let him have the money. Let, let him go make uh, you know, his own career. Let him go out and do what he wants. But that's not the context of this story at all. The context of the story is this honor culture. And it was a culture where, where you would be expected to live under your, under your father's authority to some degree, even to the point uh, until his deathbed. And then at his deathbed, you'd be blessed and given your inheritance. There was a degree of independence, but you'd live basically on the family farm somewhere. Um, you'd, you'd become part of the, the larger family and the, and the larger economic enterprise of that farm. Uh, and so that's what you would do. You'd stay in the village. You didn't change villages, by the way. Uh, you were known by your village. Often last names came from your village because your identity was attached to your village. Uh, and so when the son asks for that, he's not just saying, you know, let, let me be my own person and stand on my own two feet. He's rebelling against everything he would have known. And he's bringing shame on the father. He's bringing shame on the village. He's bringing shame on himself. He's bringing shame on his family. Um, he, he's going against the grain. Um, 
I don't know if you guys identify with the idea of an honor culture, if you've ever been around it. And actually, within, even within uh, culture in the United States, there are greater or lesser degrees of honor culture. New England is probably the extreme non-honor culture, uh, independent, and, you know, and everyone stands on their own two feet. But other parts of the country and other ethnicities are more aware of this, more aware of the commitment to the family and so forth and, and, and all that goes on. I have a friend who served in Japan as a missionary, and he talked about the honor culture in Japan, and it was very difficult for my friend, he's from Toronto, Canada, because it's so intense. Uh, they have routines, actually. You're expected to fall in line with the routines. And he just mentioned one of them, that there's a certain day of the week where everybody must go out and clean the sidewalk and the street in front of their house. Uh, and, and you're expected to go out, and that, that day, at that a certain time, you're out doing that. And if you don't do it, it's terrible. It brings shame on your family and shame on the village. So, so it was difficult for my friend because like, I don't want to go clean the street right now and, and I'll do it later. But no, that's not how you think there. You, you have an obligation to your community and what you think independently doesn't mean that much. That's the context here. And so this son, as he asks the father for uh, his inheritance, he's going to break up the estate because it wasn't in coins and money. His inheritance was in livestock and land and family heirlooms. So he's going to liquidate the estate. We talked about all this last week a bit, but I say all that so that we can dig into the father's response. What would have been expected was if the father was asked these things by the son, the norm would have been for him to say no, but to, but to probably even just turn his back on the son and walk away and say nothing. And then send the elder brother to the son because uh, so the for the father to interact with the son with that request would be shaming himself. The best thing, the honorable thing for him to do is turn his back and walk away and not say a thing. Send the elder brother to that son and appeal to him not to do that. And to appeal maybe even with the village elders and saying what you're doing is, is horrible. Don't do it. Please don't do it. And if you do it, it will mean all these things. He would be disinherited. He would be kicked out of the village and so forth. That's what's going on here. So that's the normal response, an honorable response uh, and, and to this day, actually, this sort of behavior does go on. These sort of uh, responses do go on in, in the Mideast. Uh, similar culture, of course, to the culture of the Bible um, in the ancient Near East. So the son, in doing this, is, is really shaming his father, shaming the village, shaming everyone, and basically saying, I'd rather you be dead. So it's just about the worst thing you could do in the culture at the time, short of actually murdering your dad and his family. And... and the normal response would be for the father to, to punish the son, to reject him, and, and they, they even had actually official ceremonies that they would do to, to do that, to shame the son, to, to preserve the honor of the family because, and the village because of the son's response. Yet, what does the father in the story do? Now remember, this is the context. Jesus understands the context, and he's making points about the father here. So, when, so every detail like this is important. What does the father in the story do to that request? Does he turn his back and walk away? Does he send the elder brother to rebuke him? Does he send the village elders to punish the son? No. He actually allows him to divide up the inheritance. He actually goes forward and gives him his portion of the estate. He allows that auction, however they did it. It might have been something like an auction taking place on the family farm. He allows it to happen. He allows the son to get the money and to go his way. Even though... Uh, it's causing him great sorrow and great shame, great pain as the father, great pain for his family and so forth. Even so, it's causing great damage to him 
personally and the family, he's gracious in his response and allowing him to make the choice even to do this. And that is a point worth thinking about and, and thinking through what Jesus is getting at. The graciousness of the Father even in permitting people to go their own way. To go the way of their choices. Allowing people to make choices that are bad choices. There's a graciousness in that. Because the Father, uh, the Father in the story should have reacted right away. And our Heavenly Father has every right when we make a bad decision. When we turn, to turn our backs on Him and walk away. To bring punishment immediately. Because at that moment, at that moment of even the thought, never mind the action, we are rebelling against Him. And by the way, who is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills? Who owns everything? Who has prerogative over everything? Even our very lives. Is it not our Heavenly Father? He's the Creator. He's made all things. We owe our existence to Him. Every beat of our heart, every little um, action in every cell of our body, every little electron orbiting every nucleus, every single thing is made by Him, created by Him, sustained by Him, ultimately to be focused on Him in enjoyment of Him. Everything. And so when we choose to rebel, we are taking His resources and saying, I'm now going to go my own way with what you've given me. It, it, it is all His. And He has every right at the moment of, of any thought of rebellion, certainly any action of rebellion, to bring punishment on us immediately and fully. And yet He doesn't. He's gracious. He's a gracious God. He's amazingly gracious to do that. To allow us to, to make even bad decisions and go our own way. To, to, to walk out our choices. He's a gracious God. And, and the father in the story is gracious even in how he responds to the son's foolish and evil decision. Pointing to our heavenly father and his graciousness. That lesson alone, I think, is, is worth all of our time just to think about that. His grace and allowing us to make choices and, and being patient with us. And the father in the story lets the son do that and, and we know what happens in the story, right? The son goes off. The son goes to this far place. He goes away from the community of, of God's people. He goes away from, walks away from his family. He walks away from his faith. And he's out on his own and he spends all this money, probably a million dollars really, because it, it was a wealthy family and it was a, at least a third of the estate. Like a million dollars, he, he spends it all. He squanders it in reckless living among Gentiles. And he goes, he reaches the very bottom. He's feeding pigs and he wants to even eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. And he comes to his set, senses, as we've seen. And he starts to scheme and think, what can I do? I'm starving here. My father actually, I remember my father and his hired servants, that they were well fed. The people that work for my father were well fed. It's interesting how he, he gets the father wrong and that's why he runs away. But now at this point, he's starting to come to his senses and he's starting to get the father right a little bit. At least he understands my father treats his hired servants well. They're well paid. They eat well. He remembers the, the generosity of his father even and how the hired servants are treated. That they're well fed. And, and so he thinks I can go back and maybe somehow be one of them. So that's the scheme is somehow I'll go back and I'll appeal to my dad. There's hope. 
that somehow he can get away with this. Now, it's audacious, by the way, to even think of coming back after what he's done. Because normally, again, he would have been kicked out, he would have been disinherited. Um, they, they had a, a ceremony actually among the Jewish people in the first century called the Kazaza ceremony, which would, they would basically break a, a, a vase uh, in front of the person and like throw it on the ground and, and say, you're cut off from your people. And that was the ceremony. You're cut off. You're done. Never go back. Uh, you, you have to go find your own way. You're, you're exiled. You're banished. That's the, the sort of context here. And yet the, the son has, uh, again, he's audacious in his scheme, thinking the father will let him back somehow. But I think part of it is, is he understands his father. He understands his father's graciousness. So he schemes to come back. He's getting the father right a little bit, but he's still oriented towards himself. He wants to fill his belly. We talked about that last week. So he comes back. And that's where we start to see the, the graciousness of the father on full display. And, and Good, you got the verses up uh, about the father and how he responds. So um, the part that starts with the father's response. Um, verse 22. This is where we start to see it on full display. The graciousness Graciousness of the Father. Again, the normal thing would have been for him to be banished. Um, but he comes, to the, he comes, he starts to come back. And, and in this case, again, the normal thing, uh, he, if he had not been banished earlier, would be that as he comes into the village, for the villagers to recognize, well, there's that son. And the picture here, too, is that he's destitute. He comes back, he's probably in rags. He's barefoot. Um, He's probably dirty, stinky. He doesn't maybe even look like the son that he knew. He comes back as a dirty, uh, ragged beggar on the road. He comes back. And, and the way that things work in these villages too is, is everybody knows everybody's business. Uh, and so there are, during the day, there'd be people out in the village and the, the children would be around. And so you don't get away with anything. If you're coming back into the village, you're going to be intercepted right away by somebody else. Uh, there's going to be some young boy who sees you and sees this dirty beggar coming and is going to go tell his friends and then they're going to start you know, following him and everything and, and uh, harassing him and then maybe tell their fathers and stuff. So it's, in this case, it's not easy to come back because you're going to be seen and you're going to get in trouble. The village is going to come out and they're going to find out who you are. You don't just walk into the, the village. Um, it's not like today. You know, We just kind of walk down... Main Street, and nobody's like, oh, who are you? What are you doing here, right? We just, no one thinks of that. That's not how we live. But these villages would have been isolated. They would have known each other. Uh, and so when you come in the village, everyone knows what's going on. That's part of the backdrop here. And what would have happened again at this point is everyone would have identified the son, and he would have been probably uh, punished even right then. There would have been basically a, a lynch mob. Uh, they wouldn't have killed him, but they would have gathered, and they would have probably beat him and spit on him, and kicked dirt on him, and, and, and said, what are you doing here? Who do you think you are showing your face here again after what you did? That's, that's what the response normally would have been. And that's again what the audience would have understood. So Jesus is telling this story again, this cultural context, and, and He uses that background to make some very profound statements. It says uh, in verse 22, He's coming back, it says, but... Um, Let's see. No, before. Uh, he, verse 20. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, what happened? His father saw him. 
He's a long way off. His father sees him. The father sees the son. What is a wealthy estate owner who manages a big farm and, and has other things to do, what's he doing looking for his son on the road? His son who shamed him. Why would he ever even want to see him? This father is really different, isn't he? He's looking for his son. Think, think this father is probably spending every day at, at moments when he gets up, you know, going to the road. Maybe, maybe this day he'll come back. Maybe just maybe he's not dead in the, a ditch somewhere. He's alive and he's going to come back to me. He's looking for the son. And he's, he's looking out for the son. And he sees him while he's a long way off. He sees the son and he's moved with compassion as he sees him. Uh, he's moved with compassion. The word compassion is a stronger word in the, in the, in the Bible. Uh, it, it, uh, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's, it's very similar. Uh, the word in Greek, and I, I do this very rarely because our English Bibles are so good, you don't need to know, really know Greek, but this word I want to tell you, the word here for his compassion is the word splachnon. Splachnon. Um, it sounds like what it means. It means your guts, your intestines. Uh, and so the word for compassion is, is a word that, that is almost the same word as guts, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it, and it connotes with that this, this idea of something so strong you feel it inside. Think of, we say something's gut-wrenching, right? It was a, boy, it was a gut-wrenching thing to watch that happen to my friend or something like that. So when we feel like, oh, it's just awful and sorrowful, it's gut-wrenching, that's, that's what this word means. Uh, to this day, actually, in that part of the world, the Mideast, uh, if you're speaking of, of compassion, you'll, you'll say, uh, I was all cut up in my guts. Um, that's the word here. And so the father sees the son, and he's full of compassion. He has compassion on him. He, he looks at his son rather than looking at his son who has caused him so much pain and shame and done such a terrible thing to him and his family and his village. Instead of being angry at that moment and thinking, that stupid son of mine, I can't believe he showed up. What's he going to try to get away with now? Instead, he sees him a long way off. He has compassion on him. And then he runs to the son. He runs to the son. There's, I think, a number of things behind that. First is, because he loves the son, because he's gracious towards him, because he feels this way towards him, he recognizes if he doesn't get to the son first before the boys in the village do and the villagers do, the son's in trouble. He has to get there first before anyone else does. Because otherwise, he's going to be treated as normally would be expected. He will be punished. They will, in order for the, the, the shame of the, the honor of the village to be upheld in the family, they must shame the son. And so he runs to him because of that. But he runs to him because of his great love and his great compassion for the son. And he runs, and, and there's something we miss there too, because we think, boy, I mean, if I felt that way, I would, I would run as well. I'd run and I'd, I'd just give him a hug. I'd be so glad he's there. But, but men in the ancient Near East, older men in particular, never ran. You never ran. You walked everywhere. The only, the only people that ran were children. It was part of the honor thing. But also there's some practical realities to it as well. In that day, uh, men and women basically wore, for clothing, uh, a long shirt. Your first bit of clothing on your body was a long shirt. Maybe knee length 
or, or so with some space. Uh, and then you, you might wear a robe over that, uh, if you could afford a robe. Um, and, you know, a belt, sandals, and, and a turban for a guy. Uh, and, and so you basically had something like a toga or a dress on. Um, and it would be somewhat tight-fitting. It's not really loose. So I've never worn, well, I won't say I wore a toga once a long time ago, <laughs> before I knew the Lord. But, uh, but I've... <laughs> I caught myself with this. I've never worn it. Like, oh no, that's not the truth. Um, you don't want to know that story. Uh, but I've been rescued by Jesus. My life has changed. But ladies, if you have a, a, a tight, a relatively tight skirt on and stuff, you would know you can't just go all out and run, right? I mean, it's constricting, particularly down the knees. So in order to run in those days, you would gird up your loins, right? Anyone ever read in the King James, gird up your loins? And like, what are they talking about? You know, it means get ready, right? Why? Because gird up your loin. You've got to pull your, your skirt up, basically, and tie it in your belt so your, knee, your knees are exposed so you can run. So you can be ready for battle if you're a soldier, but if you're an older man who's going to somehow run, you've got to do that. So, picture this. Remember, honor culture. Father, he's, he's a patriarch. Maybe the most prestigious man in the village. We don't know. Maybe he's 50, 60 years old or something like that. An honorable man who never ran anywhere walked and was treated with great dignity. Picking up his clothes, tying them on his belt or holding them in his hands, and running bare-legged down the middle of the village street to see his son. That's the picture. That's what's going on. That's what this father is doing. And in the story, as they listen, they would have been shocked at his behavior. He's running down the street to the son. He's running down the street to, to meet the son to get there and to greet him and greet him before anyone else does. Um, he's embarrassing himself. He's amazingly gracious in his humility at that moment to run through the streets to go see his son. And then he greets his son who would have been shamed by everybody else, would have been punished, and what does he do as he, he comes to him? He embraces him and he kisses him. And and again, culturally, this is a manly, expressive kiss on each cheek. But it, it, it's not just like once. It's like over and over again. Kissing Him. He's so happy to see the Son. And He's doing this in public view. He's doing all of this in, in public view in the village. And, and this would have been understood. It would have been very demonstrative. And, and there's certain things Jesus is getting at in this story. How did it get to be 11.15? Um, there's lots of things Jesus is getting at in this story. Help me, Lord. <laughs> I have no idea how it got to be 11.15. Where did, what were you guys doing in the past 15 minutes? Um, there's a picture of the Father in all this. His graciousness, His compassion, His humility. And what the Father is doing, I, I, I want us to get this. And this might be something, perhaps the most important thing in this story. The father is shaming himself for the sake of the son. He's acting in a way that was embarrassing and ridiculous and demonstrative to the whole village. He's 
so happy to see the Son. He cares about the Son. He's willing to be shamed for the sake of the Son in front of the whole village. To rescue the Son. He's in a sense bearing the shame of the Son. Bearing the shame that that Son deserved to receive for His behavior, for His actions, and for showing back up and looking like He did. And He's bearing the shame by running through the streets, looking ridiculous, and, and expressing Blessing and honor to the Son in the sight of the whole village. It's the only way for the Son to be rescued, by the way. Because, again, in that culture, you had to preserve honor and deal with shame. And the village would have treated Him this way had not the Father done what He did. And by the Father doing this in front of everybody, they had no choice if they were to honor this Father than to fall in line with the Father and also welcome the Son back with full honors. That's what's going on here as the Father runs to the Son. He is taking the shame on Himself. And then he says amazing things to the son. He, he, he asks, he says, bring quickly the best robe. Actually, in the original language, it's quickly. Bring the first robe. Quickly. So the son's dirty. He's in rags. And he says, go get my best robe. Quickly, go get it to the servants. So again, the picture here, he's in a crowd. The servants are all there. There's children with their mouths wide open. What is going on? This is, this is amazing. This is incredible. Uh, there's a crowd. The servants are there. So one of the servants runs to get the best robe. The best robe would have been, uh, would have been a very expensive piece of clothing. Uh, and that day, clothing was a premium. You had basically one set of clothes for most people. If you were wealthy, you had two. Maybe more if you're really wealthy. And if you were really wealthy, you could afford a special robe, a kind of a ceremonial robe that you would only wear like once or twice a year. You'd wear it maybe at the Passover. You'd wear it if you were meeting with a, a dignitary or a, no, a nobility. It was an expensive piece of clothing. Think of like the Oscars, right? And some of the, the outfits that they have at the Oscars. The, the average price for a man's tuxedo at the Oscars is $2,500. Anyone have a guess what the average price for a woman's dress is at the Oscars? $72,000. Isn't that crazy? $72,000. That's the average. Some are less. Some are a lot more. Think a $72,000 piece of clothing. That's what the robe is, okay? That's the level. This is a very expensive piece of clothing that was only for very special occasions. And the Father says, quickly, quickly, quickly get that robe and put it on my son. This is my son. He's, he was dead and he's alive. He's returned to me. The son has come back. And, and, and in this, by the way, I'm skipping all this. I talked about it last week. The son's original scheme to kind of, I'll become a hired servant and stuff, is all of a sudden lost amidst this amazing graciousness and kindness of the father. The father, the, the father bearing the son's shame by running through the village would have shocked the son to see how much he loved him, that he would assume now shame on himself so I could be rescued from the shame I deserve. And in, the, in light of that, of that display, he drops his request to be a hired servant. He no longer cares about his scheme. He only cares about his father. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You're an amazing father. And I've sinned against you. And all he wants at that point, he, does, he doesn't care about filling his belly. He cares about the Father now. He's reconciled. He responds to the Father in this amazing grace and love of the Father. And the Father embraces him and honors him. And there's a robe, a $72,000 robe to wear. He says, get a ring on his finger. 
The ring would have been the signet ring of, of the family. It would have represented the authority of the family. And he says, get sandals for his feet. Poor people and slaves went barefoot. People of wealth and honor wore sandals. And so all these things would have said so much about the honor of the Father on the Son. And they all point to really our Heavenly Father. They point to how He treats us when we return to Him. And it's amazing because we are called to return to Him. He calls us to return. And, and we return and often we're just like the younger son. We have a scheme in mind. We have something we want out of it. But when we really encounter God and who He is, shown to us through the Gospel, shown to us through Christ on the cross, crucified for our sake, taking our shame, when He only deserved honor. When you understand who He is, when you see that, when you see that He's taken your shame, being crucified, there was nothing more shameful, by the way, in that day than to be crucified. And they were crucified, by the way, naked. Not to make much of that point, but it was part of the shame of the cross. It was incredibly shameful, shameful to be crucified on a cross. To be on display in front of everybody. Naked and tortured. And the Gospel is about Jesus taking our shame on Himself on the cross. As we put our faith, as we simply return to Him and see that love and receive that love and decide we don't want to go our own way anymore, that we believe something different about God. When you put your faith in Him, He takes your shame. He takes your sin. He takes your guilt. He takes it all on Himself willingly. And amazingly, He bestows honor on you. There's a robe that costs way more than $72,000. It's the robe of Jesus Himself and His righteousness and goodness. And we are, in Christ, clothed with that robe. That's how we're seen. It's a, it's, a, it's a reality. And we see it throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That in Him we would be considered, counted, and treated as if we were the righteousness of God. As if we had always honored God and never done anything shameful. Galatians chapter 3 says, For as many as you were baptized into Christ, so coming into Christ, have put on Christ. That word put on means clothed. And so in the New Century Version, it says you were all baptized into Christ and so you were all clothed with Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you have come to, to God through Christ, You've exchanged your shame for honor. And you wear that robe of righteousness. It's Christ's robe of righteousness. And, it, and it's a robe that affects us. Our relationship with Christ affects us so that when we begin to walk in righteousness as well. And that's part of the robe. We learn that in, in Revelation as well. You have a signet ring on your finger as well that says son and daughter. You carry the authority of the family. You belong to the family. You are a son or daughter of the King of kings. God Himself. And therefore, you are kings and queens yourselves. Inheritors. Along with Christ. And so Romans 8 says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's not all that goes on in the story. And, and I hope you hear what Jesus is doing. Again, this is Jesus telling this story 
Why? To change our understanding of the Father. He told it to the original audience for that reason. He's telling it to you right now for the same reason. And he's piling up one thing on another. One extravagant, ridiculous, gracious, heartfelt, humble response to the Father after another. To make it clear what the Father's like. And so, the ring, the coat, the kisses, the sandal, the shame on your behalf, and then the fattened calf. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a celebration. Let's sing and dance. Let's celebrate that this son, this son of mine is back. Let's have a block party. Let's invite the whole neighborhood. Let's have everyone come. We're going to have music. We're going to have dancing. We're going to have filet mignons for everybody. Everyone's going to get to eat filet mignons and all the barbecue they want. It's going to be a celebration. That's the picture. But it's even more than that. We don't even have anything to grasp because they didn't eat meat a whole lot in that day. It was expensive. Your normal meal was not like we have... Like, if I don't have meat at, at dinner, I feel like, we didn't eat any dinner, right? And I think we, a lot of us feel like that. Sorry if you're a ve- vegan, that's a fine option. But for me, I eat meat. And if I don't have it, I don't feel like I have dinner. Back then, they didn't eat meat, like, a couple times a year. Maybe some broth, maybe some fish once a week, depending on where you lived. So it was beans and bread. So meat was a big deal. And a fattened calf was a huge deal. It was a big celebration. Really, it was a, a, this is an extravagant, over-the-top celebration by the Father, rejoicing over His Son. There's music, there's dancing, everyone's there in the village. It's in that context that the Son comes back, the older Son, and we'll get to that next week. The reality is, guys, this is a picture of the Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father. And how He thinks about you. You coming back. You coming into the family. How He regards you. What He's like. How He thinks about you. You know, Zephaniah chapter 3 tells us, the Lord your God is in your midst, the Mighty One who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing, it says. It's speaking of the people of God. That's you. The promise that this is how God responds to His people. Exulting with loud singing. He rejoices over you. He is over the top in His compassion and love for you. Just like in the story. That's the point. That's why Jesus tells the story three times, by the way. And the previous two stories, shorter stories, say the same sort of thing. Early on, verse 6 and 7, He's speaking of the story of the shepherd who loses the sheep and He brings the sheep back. And he celebrates, it says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus says this, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in heaven. Guys, this isn't the angels, though they're celebrating too. Again, I talked about this last week, they, they shied away from using God's name. They would use other things, and, and heaven was one of them. So the joy in heaven is the Father's joy. If you don't believe me, look at the other story of the coin. In verse 9 and 10. She rejoices, and then Jesus says this, verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy where? Among the angels? Before the angels. Who's before the angels? God the Father. And then this story. Jesus is saying, guys, The Father. 
This is what the Father is like. Rebels who think that the Father isn't good and glorious and that there's some better deal in life and so you run away, you're getting the Father wrong. This is what He's like. He's gracious. He's faithful. He's humble. He's compassionate. He's good. He he's, has all the resources you could ever want. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. Come to Him. Come to His mercy and grace. The One who takes on shame so that your shame can be covered. So you can be rescued. Elder brothers who think that God is somehow a killjoy who's got, who's got rules and if you do the rules well enough then you can earn something from Him. No, that's not what the Father's like at all. This is what the Father's like. Come to Him. Know that He rejoices over you as you come. This is what the Father is like. He's extravagant in His grace. Extravagant in His love. Extravagant in His humility and, and mercy and kindness. If the band could come up. Let me ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Or is there some other view of the Father that has dominated your life? Do you believe He's like He is in the story? Are you hearing what Jesus is saying? Or are you like the younger brother or the older brother? Or do you vacillate between the two? That's my answer for me. I, I find myself vacillating between the two. This story is here for you. For all of us. It's here for the person for the, who for the first time is understanding what the good news of Jesus is and His death on the cross. And if you're that person, we just welcome you to come to the Father. Come to God. Simply turn and trust Him. It's here for you, but it's here for the person who's read this story a thousand times. That you might know who He is and be changed by who He is. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. So as we prepare to transition to communion as well, I just want to pray. And I just uh, ask you to pray along with me. I'm just going to respond to the story myself in a short prayer.